My name is Dave Dorst. If I haven't met you, we are glad to have you here if you're visiting or if you're frequent. If we haven't seen you in a long time, it's good to see you again. Let's turn to Mark chapter 7. Verses 24 through 37. Two accounts of Jesus' life, encounters that he has. So we'll start in verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his finger into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epphathra, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Second Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Open and illuminate our hearts and our minds this morning so that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and conform our lives to what we've understood through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. My dad was a big Motown music fan. I don't know what you listened to growing up, but the Four Tops, Smokey Robinson, The Temptations, all those great uh, Motown 60s bands were part of the soundtrack of my youth. Before my heavy metal days and when we weren't listening to like Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Amy Grant, and like acoustic stuff, we had that, that, the Motown songs going. My Girl... I heard it through the grapevine, Tracks of My Tears. You know those songs? One of the songs in particular, Ain't Too Proud to Beg by The Temptations. Do you know that one? 
I know you want to leave me, but I refuse to let you go. Sound familiar? Ain't too proud to beg, sweet darling. Please don't leave me, girl. We won't have a big sing-along. Thanks. Thanks. I've never sung on this stage before. Weird. All right. Thanks for that. Uh, That song really stood out. Um, Just so singable, but also... Because I remember even as like a 10-year-old boy thinking, wow, that guy's pathetic. I would never beg a girl to stay with me. I may, might beg her to like ask her out to go out with me. But man, if she wants to leave, forget it. Just go. I'm not going to be that pathetic. We all have to figure out what we're willing to beg for. As as children, as a child, I remember begging probably a lot with my parents. Can we stay up later? Can I have this or that action figure? Um, You know, what you beg for. Stay home from school because I'm sick. Um, And then you become a parent and you actually beg your children. Just please sleep past 6 a.m. And please eat what I made you. And don't embarrass me. And but for the most part, we're going to grow out of it. We don't beg people around us very much. Hopefully you don't beg a lot at work or around the neighborhood. Um, it feels demeaning, right? It doesn't feel right to beg people. But sometimes begging isn't such a bad thing. It's not such a disgraceful thing. When you're desperate, you'll beg. You'll do whatever you have to do particularly when it comes to the well-being of your family and friends. Today's passage sees people begging Jesus for healing on behalf of a friend or a family member. So the first instance of begging is in the encounter of verses 24 through 30 with a woman who comes to Jesus with a great need. Uh, It's an instance where a Gentile gets a miracle when she shows faith. So let me read those verses again, 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, put yourself in the shoes of this woman for a minute. Try to imagine a demon has possessed your child. We joke about that sometimes. Kids like, possessed, what's going on? But all joking aside, if that was true, it would be horrifying. Right? You would feel so helpless and terrified by what could happen to your child. But if you heard that there was an expert 
in these things, someone nearby who could help you. I think you would find them and do whatever you had to do. You beg them even. I know I would. So this woman, this mother, she goes, she finds Jesus as the secret location where he's trying to hide and rest. And she falls in his feet. And he's too proud to beg there to cast a demon out of her daughter. At first glance, Jesus seems harsh in his interaction, doesn't he? I know that he's trying to get away from the crowds. He He's hiding out, and on the face of it, it looks like Jesus is just annoyed. And so he insults this woman, maybe to get her to just go away. It's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. We're not used to Jesus sounding callous and harsh like that. Right? We're used to Jesus who had compassion on the crowds and spoke kindly. Mark has told us that she's a Gentile, and she would have immediately recognized who the children and who the dogs refer to, the Jews and the Gentiles. She, she knows that she and her daughter are the dogs in this illustration. Calling a person a dog in that society was a great insult. But we have to understand that Jesus is not using the word that he could have used for the wild dogs of that society. He's actually using the Greek word for puppy, uh, kuneria. And I think he, what he's doing is testing this woman's perseverance. It sounds like an insult to our ears. But he's testing how much is she willing to advocate for her daughter. I think Jesus knows that she's going to keep asking and she does, and he is impressed with her understanding. Now, Matthew 15 records this encounter as well, and it adds the phrase, Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The Jews are the children who are fed first, right? The Gentiles are new to the table. Jesus' priority is to go to his own people and declare the ways of the kingdom to them first. Even the Apostle Paul, who we generally call the uh, Apostle to the Gentiles, makes it very clear that the Jews were first in line. They were prioritized to hear of Jesus' salvation. Romans 1.16, Paul wrote, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jews... And also to the Greek or Gentiles. The woman understands what Jesus is talking about. She knows that she's not one of the children. Doesn't naturally have a seat at the table. But she says essentially there's, there's plenty of food on this table. And I know that it would be an easy thing to let some crumbs fall off. So that the, dog, the dogs can have some. James Edwards points out that this woman actually is the first person in Mark to hear and understand a parable of Jesus, right? Most of the time, the disciples are like, what? Can you explain that? Uh, she, that she answers Jesus from within the parable, that is, in the terms by which Jesus addressed her, indicates that she's the first person in the gospel to hear the word of Jesus to her. And Kent Hughes sees that this, this woman is fulfilling Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, 
it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And she is rewarded for seeking him. Her daughter is released from the demon. Jesus is pleased that she has understood him and pressed through, persevering in faith. I think there's an interesting question here for us because most of us are Gentiles, non-Jews, right? Does Jesus still hold that same stance toward us? Are we still just hoping for scraps of grace off the table that is set for the true children of Israel? I don't think we're, we need to look at that in, in racial, ethnic terms anymore. Jesus was saying this because in his ministry on earth, he was sent to preach to Israel first, but he was obviously including the Gentiles in his ministry too. And the way that redemptive history unfolds after Jesus' death and resurrection, the early church branches out to the Gentiles very quickly, particularly through Paul's ministry. And so at the end of the book of Romans, Paul explains how the church is the new Israel. Even if we're not ethnically Israel, we have been engrafted onto the tree of faith. But there's also a real sense in the New Testament where we still don't deserve any grace that we get. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. The only thing we deserve is punishment for them. So we are actually still the dogs waiting for the scraps off the table. All people. But Jesus gives grace even to the undeserving. The worst thing you can do is assume that you are one of the privileged children who deserves God's gifts. That's that's where the Pharisees were, right? They had the, the attitude that we're, we're God's people by birthright, right? We do things morally, decently, in order. God owes us. God favors us. And Jesus essentially told them, you are far from the kingdom. One of the most frequently repeated phrases in scripture is, he who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We need to remember that. It's only by God's grace that we become his children. We have no sense of entitlement, no ability to contribute anything to our salvation. We are dead in our sins, lost in our helpless state, enemies of God. But through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ and the miracle of the resurrection, God makes us his children by faith, forgiving our sins and giving us a seat at his table for all of eternity. That's still a beautiful picture. The second story of this passage sees Jesus returning from being back. He was up north, Tyre, Sidon. He comes back near, near Galilee, but he's still in Gentile territory. And so the second story, we see a, a Gentile gets a miracle even without showing faith. Verses 31 through 35. Then he returned, Jesus, from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis means 10 cities. 
And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephathra, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Mark is the only gospel writer to record this particular miracle. Some group of people, we don't know who they are, in verse 32, bring a man to Jesus who needs a healing touch. And just like the Syrophoenician woman, the mother, the crowd begs. They beg Jesus to help. Did you catch that? The man was deaf, and his speech impediment is most likely much more than just a lisp or a stutter, or he couldn't say his R's like like I couldn't until most of the way through elementary school. It's a lot deeper than that. The the Greek word is mogilalos which means that people couldn't understand any of his speech. So Jesus takes the man aside. He touches his ears and his tongues, and his tongue uh, makes him work. Was there some special meaning or power behind the method of what he's doing there, of how he healed him, maybe? It seems to me that Jesus uses a different method every time he heals someone. Right? Sometimes it's from a distance. Sometimes he puts mud in their eyes. Sometimes he just touches them. Sometimes it's just speaking. Maybe Jesus doesn't want people think, thinking that there's power in whatever method he's using. So that, uh, that this was some thing that they could reproduce and get the same, uh, some kind of formula or medical procedure. No, the power is in the touch of God, and the power of God comes through him. But maybe uh, Sinclair Ferguson explains that Jesus spoke to him in the language that he could understand, sign language. The fingers placed in his ears and then removed meant, I am going to remove this blockage in your hearing. And the spitting and the touching on the man's tongue meant, I am going to remove the blockage from your mouth. And the glance up to heaven meant it is God alone who is able to do this for you. So the man is healed and can hear and speak plainly. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 has been fulfilled as it was constantly during Jesus' earthly ministry. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And again, we see the parallel to ourselves that spiritually speaking, we are born deaf, mute, and blind. We are blind and deaf because we can't understand the things that God has done because our hearts are hearts of stone. We're spiritually dead. People who read the Bible as unbelievers can understand the words. They can understand the concepts on some level. But they cannot completely understand it until they believe it. Until the Holy Spirit changes us. We don't get it. 
We speak the natural man, what the natural man speaks. When God bestows salvation upon us, when he makes us new creations in Christ, we become alive to spiritual things. We see, hear, and speak of the Lord in new ways. Romans 8 says that we discern the things of the Spirit. Our minds are set on what the Spirit desires. And so the last two verses wrap up the passage and show the amazement among the crowd. Let me read those again. Verses 36 and 37. They can't keep from proclaiming what they've seen. Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Only one time in the gospel has Jesus said, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Do you remember that? That was back in chapter 5. The man that he had cast the legion of demons out of. It was actually in the same area, in the Decapolis. But most of the time, and this is, I counted, this is like the fifth time in Mark that Jesus has said, you need to keep this secret. Don't tell anyone. I'm glad to have helped this guy, right? But there are some moving parts going on, and I'm not ready to have the news get out and the crowds swell. He doesn't say all that. I'm adding that. I think that's a lot of the motive. It's this, what we call the messianic secret. He's still trying to keep it under wraps a bit before Jesus' time comes. And what's interesting is of those five times, two of those times... He's telling demons, don't talk about this. And the demons are bound to that. It's the people who can't actually obey him. Rarely do the people listen to Jesus when he tells them not to spread the news about him. So these these people here, they knew this man before, right? He was deaf and they had to kind of get in his face and they couldn't understand him. And now he comes out and can speak and hear perfectly well. And so they are amazed. And it says that they proclaim the story. Zealously they proclaimed it. Because they were astonished beyond measure. And then did you see what they, they said? He has done all things well. I love that. What an understatement. Right? They've just seen a small bit of what Jesus does. And they've said he's done all things well. We see the full scope in the pages of Scripture that the perfect God-man who followed his Father's path for his life, who never sinned, who spoke words of life to all who were around him, who loved and healed and taught and sacrificed himself, Jesus did and does all things well. And so I come back to this idea, this question of what are we willing to beg Jesus on behalf of for other people? How strongly are you willing to beg him? Will you persevere in prayer for your family, 
for your friends, for anyone who needs Jesus' healing touch, who needs to be delivered from spiritual darkness. In in Luke 18, Jesus tells, you probably remember, the parable of the persistent widow. You remember that story? Uh, This widow keeps bothering this judge to give her justice. And at first, the judge just ignores her. And Jesus tells us his inner thoughts. He starts to think, this woman keeps bothering me, so I guess I'll, I'll give her justice just to shut her up. John actually, or uh, Luke prefaces the parable by explaining why Jesus told it. And he told them a parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. And so Jesus goes on and says that God is so much better than an unrighteous judge. He will give you what you ask for in prayer if you will persist in it. Now, I'm going to admit, I don't think by my actions, that I usually believe that. Yet I go through cycles of prayer, but I give up easily. I forget it. I don't persevere very well. So I'm preaching to myself first. Absolutely. This challenges me to keep praying in faith for the salvation, for healing, for friends and family members. I know many Christian families have a child who has strayed from the Lord, walked away from faith. And I read recently, we we had a man named Nick Batsig. I don't know if you remember him. A couple years ago, he came and did our officer's retreat and preached here, uh, which would have been May, I think, of 2017, maybe, 2018. Uh, He's a pastor in the PCA. He writes a lot. He wrote an article for the Together for the Gospel website. It's called Hope When Your Children Stray. And it's not just wise, detached, pious advice. It's because Nick was quite a prodigal. And he was raised in a Christian family, but really walked away from it, ran away from it. And, uh, but throughout his rebellious years, he said his parents prayed faithfully for him. He uh, likens it, the, the great theologian, Augustine of Hippo, his mother, Monica, prayed for him all through. And so he likens it to that. He said that his parents' prayers worked. Uh, he, he realized that one time when he was in a bar with a bunch of his buddies, and a biker came over and started sharing the gospel with him and asked if he could pray for him right in front of all his buddies. And that's amazing answer that his parents had been praying that God would surround him with Christians. His parents even continued to read God's word to him when they were near him, with him, even when he was hungover or still high from partying the night before he talked about. But eventually he came back and embraced the faith. I'm not guaranteeing your child will become a pastor or that it would be dramatic, or even that they're guaranteed to come back to faith. Some never do. But we know God is still writing their story. But I am saying, never give up. Keep praying for your child. You you never know what God will do in their lives. Matthew Henry said it's more important for parents to leave a treasury of prayers for their children than it is to leave them silver or gold. 
We know a child's salvation is not automatic, and it's got to still be a work of grace by the Holy Spirit in their lives. We cannot force salvation and faith in Christ. But we can model, we can disciple, we can speak, but most of all, we can pray. And pray with great faith that God will save them. I'm not too proud to beg for my kids, for my friends, for anyone in spiritual and physical need. I hope you're not either. Because we trust in a God who does all things well. He works miracles. He works good things in our lives. But sometimes he wants us to persevere in prayer. And when God works May we be astounded beyond measure and zealously proclaim his praise. Amen. Take a moment to pray that you would commit yourself to prayer and understand what God is asking us. And then I'll close. I'm going to start with, actually, the prayer is in your outline there. The words of Thomas Cranmer. Father God, we do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. And so we thank you that through the sacrifice of Jesus, through the drawing of the Holy Spirit, through the faith that you give us, that we are made your children, adopted into your family, seated at the family meal, and you feed us faithfully. God, we rejoice and thank you for that. And we recognize that you draw people out of spiritual darkness, cast the demons out of them, Bring them to faith in Christ. You heal the blind, the sick, the lame, the deaf. And you give us new hearts, new lives. And we also see in this passage, Lord, that you want us to persevere in prayer. You want us to beg you because those around us are lost and hurting. And there are things in our lives that we need. And so we pray that we would be a people persistently in prayer, asking for your great things because we want to rejoice and marvel and then zealously praise you and proclaim what you've done. May we be a people that see you work and rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen. First Timothy 6, 15 and 16.
says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.